and welcome to the third in a series of podcast lectures that focuses on object relations theorists. And the theorist that I'm going to be focusing on in this specific podcast lecture is Ronald Fairburn. So Fairburn is, in my opinion, one of the more difficult to understand thinkers that we are going to be tackling in this class. His work is not easy to read. And I'd even say that it is kind of impossible to read and understand if you don't already have a very, very good grasp of the Freudian concepts that Fairburn is often reacting to very negatively. Uh, you need to understand Freud and really understand Freud quite a lot before you can understand Fairburn. At least that's how I think about it. I think this is because so much of what Fairburn is attempting to produce, what the kind of psychoanalysis that he's attempting to do and the kind of theory that he's attempting to produce is an attempt to show that Freud was wrong and to offer an alternative to Freudian psychoanalysis, an alternative that he thinks, that Fairburn thinks, is superior. As I prepared for this podcast lecture, I, I did a lot. I mean, I reread the chapter in the textbook that you all are going to be reading for this class, but I also went and pulled out some other things that I had. You know, I pulled out some of the books that I have that contain the collected papers of Ronald Fairburn and, you know, reacquainted myself with my highlights, annotations, and I reread some articles that I have that I think are really good at helping to kind of reorient me to the thought of Ronald Fairburn. And as I was doing that, it became really apparent to me that I could talk for like several weeks about Fairburn. And of course, I don't have several weeks to talk about Fairburn. I have just this week. And as a result, I'm going to do my best to distill Fairburn's robust, really complicated thinking into something that I hope will be understandable and useful to you. So now let's do a little bit of introduction music. And when we come back, I'm going to start talking about uh, Fairburn and how Fairburn relates to Freud. So it's probably easiest to start off with something that both Freud and Fairburn agree on. And that is they both believe that the fundamental source of human motivation originates in the unconscious. Keeping in mind the unconscious, if you listen to previous podcast lectures, this will sound familiar to you, is a part of you that has desires of its own, a mind of its own, its own plan. And sometimes that plan is not what you consciously desire. In fact, it can be very, very, very different from what you consciously desire. So anyways, on that, Freud, Fairburn, they're the same. They agree. However, there's these two main areas, I think, where Fairburn's ideas are based on ideas but are 
that Freud put forward, but Fairburn's take on them is like a radically different take than Freud's take. And these two areas are the concept of libido. And libido is a word that can mean a lot of different things, different people, depending on who you're reading, they'll use the word in different ways. You know, sometimes it just means something as basic as like a sex drive and other times it actually talks about like a investment of love into a relationship. Uh, Fairburn, I think, sees libido as something which is super important to all human beings, every single person. And he does see libido as the kind of emotional energy that we invest into relationships. Uh, and he thinks that the act of investing our libido into relationships with other people is in and of itself a very satisfying thing. Uh, he does not think that that all relationships are the same. He thinks that some relationships get more libido and some relationships get less. And I think that pretty much anybody who is a sane person would agree with that. But what, what's important about Fairburn is that he thinks that human beings are deep, deep down unconsciously motivated by a desire to create meaningful, loving relationships with other people. It is that desire to create those sorts of relationships that results in the emotional investment into our significant relationships. And the idea, Fairburn's idea is that making that investment and then having it kind of work out is something which we are all driven to do. So this is very different than the way that Freud sees drive. You know, Freud sees drive as a kind of destructive and oftentimes dissatisfying force in our life where Fairburn sees drive as something which uh, aims to help us create meaningful, loving, reciprocal kinds of companionships, relationships with other people. The second big area where Fairburn disagrees with Freud is on the concept of the ego and the structure of the ego. Uh, Fairburn sees it as structured in a very, very different way from the way that Freud sees it for structured. So quick, quick, quick review here. You know, Freud's structural model of the human psyche is that there's an id, there's an ego, and there's a superego. Fairburn does not believe that the id exists. He just writes that off and says, nope, that's not really even a thing. Uh, he does believe that the ego exists and that he also believes that different from Freud, that the ego is something which is present in human beings right away from the time they're born. Now, it's not as sophisticated as it will be later in life, but it's there, right? And the ego is this thing that is uh, an agency within our minds which attempts to make sure that our needs are met. It attempts to make sure that we're uh, that our experiences are good and satisfying, those sorts of things. Fairburn's argument is that right away from moment one, right after a baby is born, that there is some kind of an ego and that as that baby grows and matures into an infant and then a child and an adolescent and an adult and so on and so on, that that ego kind of gains more access to more tools that can help it in its quest to have us have a satisfying, interesting, meaningful life, which according to Fairburn will be a life which is filled with good relationships. Now, unfortunately, I think your text did a not so great job of explaining the way that Fairburn thought about the ego. 
And so what I'm about to do is give you my take on how Fairburn understands the ego. I'm going to attempt to re-describe the way that Fairburn thinks of the ego based off of my reading of Fairburn. And I, I genuinely hope that this is of interest to you. So Freud, again, has the id, the ego, and the superego. So there's these three agencies. Fairburn also has three agencies, but they're all just different parts of the ego. So the first one is the central ego. And I think that the central ego in the way that Fairburn writes about it and, and talks about it is very similar to another concept that we have explored in a previous podcast lecture on self-psychology. It's very similar to Kohut's idea of a cohesive self, the who and what we are in the world that we share with other people. That's what Fairburn thinks of as the central ego. It is our self, it is our identity in a way, right? Now, that's the, the main thing. From there, Fairburn kind of says that, and that, that's a very conscious thing, by the way, too. I should make that very clear. The central ego is something that is pretty conscious. We can think about it. We can ask ourselves questions like, who am I? What kind of person do I want to be? Am I actually succeeding in being that person? Am I failing in being that person? Uh, all that takes place consciously within the central ego. But then there's these two parts of the ego that Fairburn sees as unconscious, and they are the libidinal ego and the anti-libidinal ego. So the libidinal ego, I think we could say, is sort of like this internalized cheerleader for us. It is an internalized fantasy of a nice, nurturing, caring, responsive, respectful kind of parental figure which effectively convinces us that we can safely try things and that even if it doesn't work out, it won't be a disaster. Uh, you could imagine the libidinal ego as the good parent that people have kind of soaked up and has worked its way into their inner world. Now, if somebody's had a really good per parenting experience, if people you know, are lucky enough to have parents who are themselves, you know, really emotionally mature. Um, they're parents who wanted to have kids and they did their best to try to make sure that they encouraged their kids in different ways. And when their kids got frustrated, you know, they didn't rush in and, and rescue them from the frustration, but at the same time, they didn't just like leave them to totally figure it out on their own. They, they stepped in and, and provided the appropriate amount of scaffolding or support and we're like, you can do this, you can do this. You know, I'm not going to do it for you because I think you can do it. That, that's the kind of thing here. That leads to the creation of a stronger libidinal ego. The anti-libidinal ego, on the other hand, is also an internalized fantasy of an abusive, uncaring, highly critical sort of parental figure, the kind of parent that sometimes people are unfortunate enough to have that says, you know what, I didn't really want you you're, you're not what I, you're, you're, my kid isn't what I want them to be. They're not as good at the things that I want them to be at, good at. Uh, yeah, maybe they accomplished something, but they could have done better there. That's the kind of thing there. So if somebody has had more of that kind of experience, their anti-libidinal ego is very likely to be the, the, the stronger kind of unconscious agency. So we have a libidinal ego, which is very supportive, very caring, an internal cheerleader. We have an anti-libidinal ego which is kind of like an internal saboteur, super critical of all the things that we're trying to do. Generally speaking, we all have both of these things. It's just that 
for us, one of them tends to be more dominant than the other most of the time. They might go back and forth. There might be times where, I mean, generally, let's just say your libidinal ego is generally the more dominant one. That doesn't mean that it's always the dominant one. There might be specific instances in your life where the anti-libidinal ego becomes more dominant for a time. But uh, generally speaking, most people tend to have one of these things which is more dominant most often. Another thing which is really interesting about these is that Fairburn's theory suggests that both the libidinal ego and the anti-libidinal ego are actually attempting to do the same thing, which is in a way make your life easier, better, more safe and secure. Now, when I say that, I think people might think, well, how would that anti-libidinal ego accomplish that? Well, the anti-libidinal ego is the ego that forms when people, you know, attempt to form one of those kind of like loving and trusting relationships with their parents or with other people. And those relationships end up not working out. They end up experiencing a lot of rejection or something, right? Well, the anti-libidinal ego would probably send people messages like, hey, don't try to connect to people too much. You're probably, that people are bad. Uh, people don't like you. You're, you're, you're too different. You're too quirky. Um, you, those sorts of things like that. That's what it would do. And those messages, if you look at them in a certain way, I think you can see how they're kind of self-protective in a way. They're saying, and, and people, if they have a very strong anti-libidinal ego, they're going to want, they, they think that that anti-libidinal ego and all of the criticism that it, it generates and all of, all of the advice that it gives is actually something that keeps them safe. And uh, that might sound weird, but uh, I, I just encourage, if it does, and even if it doesn't, I encourage you to, to kind of think about that, right? Uh, reflect on your own lives. Think about times where you have been cautious about pursuing a relationship with either somebody or something. When I say something, it could be, you know, going to a certain college or university. It could be trying to get a specific job. And, and think about the part of you that was like, you got to be really careful here. You got to be cautious. Is this really what you want? That was probably your anti-libidinal ego in, in a lot of ways coming up. And all of those things that it was saying tended to probably aim at trying to keep you safe and secure, prevent you from making a decision, which was going to be a painful decision. Uh, your libidinal ego would be the thing that would tell you like, hey, you know what? You're going to pick this job. You're going to go to that program. And perhaps it's not the best one for you. But the only way to find out is to give it a try. And if it's not the right one for you, you know what? You can leave and try the other one that is a better try thing for you later. Will that be annoying? Yeah, it probably will be, but you can handle that. You can handle being annoyed, right? It'll be fine. That would be more of like the libidinal ego saying different things. Okay, so that kind of covers some good ground, I think. It gives us a good idea of some of the ways that Fairburn was different from Freud, but how his ideas were very much based on Freudian concepts. We're going to take one more quick transition break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk more about drives and satisfactions versus instincts and pleasure. Okay, so again, I'm going to start off with describing things the way that Freud saw them. And then after doing that, I'm going to bounce over to Fairburn and talk about how his ideas were different from the way that Freud saw things. 
So Freud talked about instincts. And in Freud, instincts are very much tied to pleasure. We do things that our instincts tell us to do. And when we do them, we end up feeling good. And this is a survival mechanism, according to Freud, right? The things that give us pleasure are also the things that our body needs to do in order to continue to be alive and to be healthy. So, you know, instinctively, our body knows I'm feeling tired. I need to go to sleep. Instinctively, our body knows I need to consume food and digest it, pull out the various nutrients from the food that I eat, and then take whatever waste is left over and get rid of that. These instincts are present from birth, right? They're, they're already there, and they're things that human beings have in common with other animals. They're things that our body just knows how to do instinctively. No one needs to teach us how to do it. When we follow our instincts, we are, in a sense, rewarded by having healthy bodies. However, Freud thought that human beings are different than animals in a really important way. Yes, we have instincts in common with them, both humans and squirrels and foxes and dogs and cats and turtles. They all have instincts, but only human beings are not satisfied with instinctive pleasure alone. Human beings have what Freud called drive in addition to instinct. And where instinct is tied to what Freud called pleasure, drive is tied to something that Freud called satisfaction. So to try to make this a little bit more clear in your mind, there's some things that we need to do. Doing the things that we need to do feels good. It brings us pleasure. However, as people, we don't only want that. We want more than that. Uh, human beings do a lot of things. They engage in a lot of behaviors that don't serve any practical purpose from a survival point of view. If you binge watch TV on Netflix, that is not helping you survive. But it can be very satisfying. It can be very enjoyable, which again, there's a difference here between enjoyment, which is tied to satisfaction and drive and pleasure, which is tied to instincts. Freud and Freudians have put forward the idea that one of the things that makes human beings unique is our drives. Our drives always want more satisfaction, more satisfaction, more satisfaction. No, no matter how much satisfaction they may get, it wants more. And this is one of the reasons why human beings uh, do things that produce a very satisfying kind of short-term experience, but oftentimes have long-term consequences. We, over, we eat more calories than we need to eat. We end up buying things that we don't use. We end up uh, investing our time in activities that do not further any of our aims, so on and so forth, right? This is a very human thing, and that's, that's the drive. So that was Freud's idea. You may agree with that. You may disagree with that. You might have questions about it. If you do, please bring your questions to class. Let's jump over to Fairburn and his ideas here. One of Fairburn's major theoretical developments that differed from Freud was his delineation of a psychological model of the mind that departed from Freud's kind of biologically centered theory of pleasure in which the central assumption was that libido is something that is pleasure-seeking or, or is uh, enjoyment-seeking, satisfaction-seeking if it's tied to the drive. Fairburn asserted instead 
that what is primary in every single human being, you, me, and all the people that we know, is our search for good relationships, meaningful relationships, loving reciprocal relationships, and that this is more urgent than the desire to gratify our drives or our instincts. For Fairburn, the driving force in the human psyche and in the human experience is not getting pleasure from doing what our instincts wants, nor is it getting a form of satisfaction from following where our drive leads us, but it is a fundamental need to relate to, to connect with other people in the world. In effect, what Fairburn is saying is that people need relationships and what they get both pleasure and satisfaction from is the creation of and then maintenance of good relationships. The sorts of relationships that uh, are going to give us that are, of course, going to change throughout the course of our life. You know, what we need in childhood time is not the same thing that we probably need when we're, you know, in our 30s or 40s or older. Uh, but we always, always, always need good relationships with other people in order to have a pleasurable, satisfactory, enjoyable life. Without relationships, life would be horrible. Uh, if you've ever watched that Tom Hanks movie, Castaway, right? Like that is a a dude alone on an island and it's not easy because there's nobody to be in relationships with and that sucks. So Fairburn saw people as always attempting to invest what Freud called libido and what Fairburn also called libido, uh, love, uh, is another way we could think of it, right? Energy into their connections with other people. And they, they, they wanted to invest in these relationships in ways that made those relationships likely to continue over the course of, of time. Uh, now this, this might not sound like, as I'm, I'm saying this out loud, I'm, I'm hearing myself speak it, right? And it, and it's, it might sound like, well, yeah, duh, of course. But what I, I'm trying to highlight for you is the way that Fairburn was taking the idea of the relationship and the importance of human relationships and really placing that very much as the fundamental unconscious thing that we're always trying to produce. So a lot of times people are doing weird, crazy things that don't make sense. And Freud, you know, could interpret those by saying that it's it's your drive, it's you attempting to get more satisfaction that you probably you might not need. Fahrenberg would probably say that if people are doing certain things, the reason that they're doing them, one way to make sense of what they're doing would be to ask yourself, how does doing this in this person's mind help them establish and continue to have meaningful, important relationships with other people? Another thing that Fairburn would I think argue is that if people have stable good relationships with other people and they have enough of those then they're going to be a lot more healthy in a ton of different areas they're going to be better at regulating their own emotions they're going to be uh, engaging in more kind of pro-social activities less anti-social activities they're going to be engaging in more uh, kind of generative sorts of pursuits and less dis personally destructive sorts of pursuits, so on and so forth. Uh, and if people lack really good, appropriate, loving, caring sorts of relationships, then what they oftentimes do in an attempt to kind of compensate for the what's missing, the lack of those relationships, is they do things like, you know, uh, consume copious amounts of alcohol or other substances that uh, we call drugs. 
They end up uh, isolating themselves and playing video games a lot. They, they do a bunch of other things like that. And that those are attempts to fill the void kind of left by the absence of important relationships that can bring pleasure, satisfaction, and enjoyment. Which brings me to another concept that Fairburn really, I think, put forward and did a lot to kind of popularize within the psychoanalytic world. And that is the concept of the schizoid. Now, I I think if anybody's listened to the Melanie Klein lecture that I did right before this, I kind of touched on this a little bit. I talked about how for a while Klein called one of her two positions the paranoid position, but then after reading the work of Fairburn, she renamed it to the paranoid schizoid position. So if that was of interest to you, here is where I'm going to attempt to unpack Fairburn's idea about what makes a schizoid personality, uh, a schizoid self in in a way. So Fairburn saw that there were a number of people in the world who came to him as patients and that these were people who desperately, desperately, desperately wanted to have meaningful relationships with other people. These were people who had attempted to create those relationships but had failed to create them. These were the the people who had, in various ways, invested a lot of love, a lot of energy, a lot of attention, a lot of time into an attempt to create a relationship with somebody. And what happened is the person who they were attempting to create a relationship with told them, I don't want to have a relationship with you. This is something that happens, I think, to a lot of adolescents as they kind of go through that very tumultuous period where they attempt to create friendships with one another and those early romantic relationships with one another. Uh, Adolescents will invest a lot of emotional energy into their relationships with other adolescents in their peer group. And if those relationships end up working out, then those adolescents are very unlikely to develop a schizoid personality. But if they don't work out repeatedly, then it becomes more and more likely that that adolescent, as they move from adolescence into adulthood, will develop into a schizoid personality. A schizoid personality is uh, the kind of person who ends up doing this. They, they, they try to create a relationship with somebody. They put a lot of, like I said, time and energy and love and stuff in, into this attempt and then it doesn't work out. And then maybe they try again and it doesn't work out again. Then they try it maybe a third time and it doesn't work out a third time. This is where things get concerning because the person ends up kind of, uh, kind of unconsciously probably thinking to themselves, I don't have a whole lot more love to give. <laughs> you know, I've, I keep on giving it. And every time I attempt to create a relationship, every time I attempt to love somebody, every time I attempt to connect to somebody, my attempt to connect to them, my attempt to love them ends up destroying the relationship. Therefore, the safest thing for me to do is to not attempt to actually create relationships with people because if I give away more of my emotional energy, if I give away more of my libido, if I give away more of my love and it doesn't work out again, I'm not sure that I'll be able to survive that. And so this is when people start to withdraw into themselves as opposed to, and they start to invest their libido into an inner fantasy world as opposed to investing that libido into external relationships with external people. What Fairburn saw when he was working with schizoid people is, you know, on the surface, these look like people who were withdrawn, who were antisocial, who didn't have any interest or desire to have relationships with people. That's what they look like at first glance. Fairburn recognized that what was really going on 
with their sort of um, seemingly indifference towards having relationships actually signified was a strong desire to have relationships, but a fear that if they were to attempt to create a relationship, that they would just end up getting hurt. And as a result, their anti-libidinal ego told them, don't try to create relationships. If you do, you're just going to get hurt to protect yourself. You need to be a loner. You know, you need to be somebody who doesn't need people. You need to do this. And this is where people, like I said, they start to create kind of like a, they, they become introverted. They maybe read lots of fantasy novels. They play lots of video games. They, they cultivate this very, 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 very elaborate, rich sort of inner kind of fantasy life for themselves. And that's where all of the investment goes as opposed to going outward. And, and Fairburn thought this is a, a real tragedy when this happens. And he really wanted to try to help people who are in that schizoid state. Now, another thing that his schizoid personality was kind of similar to in today's vernacular is uh, borderline tendencies or borderline personality disorder. Fairburn noticed that a lot of schizoid people uh, were either what I just described, these very, very, very withdrawn people, but they weren't always that. Sometimes they were people who would do this thing where they would attempt to create a relationship and, and, and attempt to create it in this kind of like very almost like desperate way where they would um, create a relationship with somebody, idealize the person who they created the relationship with, put a lot into it. And then as soon as that person who they were trying to create a relationship with did something that they didn't like or wasn't what they expected, it kind of triggered the, the individual to radically and very quickly withdraw everything that they had invested into the relationship and to retreat very quickly. Fairburn, again, saw that as something which was the result of a very dominant anti-libidinal ego and that, that these actions well, could be seen as aggressive, but, and in, in fact, of course, they are aggressive, but they're also an attempt to keep the self safe from pain and suffering and, and those sorts of things. So what's really interesting about Fairburn, I think one of the many interesting things about him is the way that he was able to take a look at these sorts of like pathological things that people were doing, pathologically withdrawing and uh, not being interested in relationships or doing that, you know, I love you, I hate you, push-pull thing and seeing it as something that was the result of prior experiences where they had attempted to create relationships, but those attempts had failed. And Fairburn also read them as things that could be potentially fixed or repaired to a degree if a person engaged in some really difficult but um, curative kind of psychotherapeutic work. So that hopefully makes those things make a little bit more sense. We're going to take one more break. When we come back from this last break, the last thing that we're going to be talking about is trauma, because trauma is another concept that focuses very heavily within the work of Fairburn. Fairburn suggests that everybody endures traumas. Everybody. Some people clearly experience more intense traumas or traumas of longer duration than others. 
So not everybody has the same amount of trauma, but everybody has experiences that are traumatic during their lives. What I think this kind of claim leads to is a question, and that question is, what is trauma? And of course, there's lots and lots of different ways that we can define trauma, but for the sake of this lecture, I'm going to propose the following way of thinking about it. I think that trauma is an experience that somebody has that cannot be integrated into a coherent, understandable narrative that we use to orient ourselves in our experience. Traumas are the things that happen to us that we cannot make sense of. When I talked about integrating them into a narrative, that's making sense of something. So right now you're listening to this podcast lecture. This is probably not a traumatic experience for you. You can integrate it into your experience. You're listening to this lecture for a reason. You're interested in Fairburn you, or object relations more broadly. You want to do well in the class, blah, blah, blah. You understand why you're doing what you're doing. It totally makes sense to you. That would make it really easy to integrate and incredibly non-traumatic. We're always trying to make sense of what happens to us. And there's stuff happening to us all the time. Now, usually we're pretty good at it. We're usually pretty good at making sense of what happens to us. But there are these instances where the things that we use to make sense of our experience, the tools don't work. Something happens and we can't understand what happened or why it happened or both of those things. We don't get it. It, it overwhelms us. It overwhelms our capacity to make sense of our lives and our experiences. That is what I'm going to suggest trauma is. Fairburn thought that one of the ways that trauma affects people is that when they experience a traumatic thing, and, and it's, people are actually a lot easier, Fairburn, I think, would suggest to traumatize when they're younger, when we're little, when we're kids, we're more vulnerable to trauma. And as we get older, since we tend to have more capacities, it's still possible to traumatize us. It's just a little bit more difficult, hopefully. But when we're kids, you know, we might, for example, go to our parents for comfort. Something bad has happened to us. We hit our head and we go to our parent for comfort. And rather than giving us comfort, the, the parent hits the kid again. Why are you bothering me? You know, get over it. Don't be a baby. Something along those lines. Fairburn would say that those sorts of experiences would constitute traumatic experiences for a kid. You know, they, and that they'd be more traumatic, I think is what I'm trying to suggest here for a kid than they would be for somebody else. Because kids are, you know, so powerless in, in the world. And he would say that those sorts of experiences get split off from us. Well, maybe not from us. They, they get split off and put someplace, which is the anti-libidinal ego. Uh, the reason for this being that, you know, if that, the example I just gave you, kids need their parents for like everything. A kid cannot give themselves food, cannot give themselves shelter, cannot give themselves any of the things that they need. They need their parents to provide them with everything. Therefore, in order to continue to have a relationship, a good relationship with the parent, and again, Fairburn thinks having good relationships is what fundamentally drives us, the kid will sort of uh, split off that traumatic experience and say that, that traumatic experience was their fault or that usually the parent, the parent would never do something like that. Again, it, get, it gets split off and becomes a part of this other thing. This other thing is the anti-libidinal ego. And that, again, that anti-libidinal ego then influences us by it kind of influencing uh, 
the way that we go about interacting with other relationships later on in our lives. So the important thing I want to stress here is that for Fairburn, everybody has traumatic experiences. We all get hurt. There's another way to say that. The ways that we're hurt actually have a pretty significant impact on who and what we are, who and what we become. Uh, and an, another way I think we, I could say this is when we get hurt, even if we heal from that hurt, there's scar tissue left behind. And that scar tissue continues to be something that influences what we do going forward. And that's just always the way that it is. People who have a lot more trauma, a lot more scar tissue, more dominant anti-libidinal egos, one of the effects that they have to endure is that they are more likely to become schizoid or borderline or some other kind of uh, pathological way of being in relationships with other people. Individuals who have less trauma in their lives are going to have an easier time at forming important, loving, reciprocal, uh, committed relationships with other people and are going to be more healthy broadly as a result of that. Uh, this uh, this is something we we they, people probably don't think of it. These things is connected, but there's something called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. You can Google this and find it. It's like a questionnaire you can give yourself or other people to see to get a, a sense, anyways, of approximately how much trauma they might have been exposed to when they were a kid. Now, the higher a person's ACEs score, that would probably lead to a higher dominance of the anti-libidinal ego and the lower a person's ACE score is probably the greater likelihood that there would be a more dominant libidinal ego in play in their lives. All right, so I'm going to run through this real quickly one more time. Fairburn would say that we all, you, me, everybody we know, we all have traumas. We've all been hurt as we've lived. The ways that we're hurt, those are very important. They have a big effect on us. Some people have been hurt more, i.e. they've had more trauma. Some people have been hurt less and or had less trauma. If you had more trauma, chances are your anti-libidinal ego is stronger. If you've had less trauma, chances are your libidinal ego is stronger. And the traumas that people endure are going to have a significant impact on how confident they are as they go about attempting to form meaningful relationships, loving relationships, committed relationships, with other people. The more successful we are at forming those good relationships, the more healthier we are overall, the less successful we are at forming those relationships, the less healthy we are overall. And uh, like I said, that's uh, my take on Fairburn. Hope the, the text has a different way of describing them. I'm hoping that my way is able to supplement the text, add to it, and help you understand the very complicated but very rich thinking of Fairburn. And I think I'm done here. So the next podcast lecture in this series of podcast lectures is going to cover the work of Donald Winnicott, uh, another object relations thinker who I think is very interesting. And I look forward to making that podcast lecture. If you listen to it, I hope you will find it interesting, entertaining, informative, and all that kind of stuff. And I hope that you found this one interesting and informative and all that kind of stuff. So till then, please do not let the man keep you down. Please make glorious mistakes, and I'll see you in class. <laughs>